0: With Cape Talk this summer.
1: It is 9.32. We're going to be chatting with Dr. Chris Smith, uh, the Naked Scientist, uh, in a short while via Zoom. He's unselfishly uh, given of himself. He said he'll come in this Friday. Most people don't want to work. It is New Year's, well, nearly New Year's Eve. Uh, He's coming to answer some of those questions. So if you have questions about the universe outside or the universe inside, this is the opportunity for you to interact directly with him. Welcome to you, Dr. Chris Smith. It's good to have you back. Good morning and almost Happy New Year. We've we've just had a question about dogs. I want to get to the dogs. Let's get to Zuki. She's in Big Bay, uh, and she's got a question for you. Zuki, please go ahead.
2: It's happy New Year's Eve, Eve. I have a question about carbonated water versus still water. Um, recently, a lot of my friends
0: are saying that they only drink carbonated water. So what I want to know is, are the pros and cons exactly the same? Are there any additional
2: constant drinking carbonated water is is one healthier than the other. Hi, Zuki. The only thing I can think of is going to be on price grounds, because what makes water carbonated is that carbon dioxide has been pushed into the water under pressure, forcing it to dissolve, and this means that when you put the cap on the bottle, the water contains its carbon dioxide you uncap it uncork it and the the fizz starts to come out because the pressure about above the liquid drops and so the gas finds it easier to come out and it it bubbles out so the only difference is going to be this carbon dioxide there what effect does that have Well, the carbon dioxide dissolves to make a bit of carbonic acid so the ph of carbonated water is slightly lower But the amount of carbon dioxide is really tiny. The freezing point of the water will be slightly lower as a result. It will slightly erode your teeth more than water that doesn't have carbonic acid in it because the lower pH will slightly lower the pH in your mouth. But if you've already got a mouthful of bacteria eating your dinner for you, you've already got low pH in your mouth anyway. Your stomach's at very low pH. So I can't really think of any difference on health grounds or or chemical grounds that it, it makes other than to the price.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Zuki. Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, then we got a message in. I, we did chat about dogs and the tendency you know, for dogs to be stressed, given the fireworks that comes with uh, New Year's Eve celebrations. Um, and, and the question really is, why do dogs respond in this particular way?
2: Um, uh, Dr. Chris Smith? Well I wish I knew because uh, I have a gun dog ostensibly a working dog but we took him shooting and he was the most useless gun dog we ever had because he <laughs> ran off as soon as one, one gun rat went off and he he went home and he li- literally did he just disappeared and I had to ring my wife and say well we're a few miles away <laughs> and the dog has gone and is heading in the direction of what looks generally like home can you look out for him and she rang me back later and said the dog is home uh he has come from breeding stock that's supposed to be Gun dog, working dog, stock. So some dogs just are very alarmed by sudden noises. A bang is a sudden, unpredictable noise. And it doesn't matter whether it's a thunderclap, a firework, a gun, a hand clap, a Christmas cracker or a party popper. It's all a sudden, unexplained noise. Dogs have very sensitive hearing. And in the same way that our brains are programmed to be galvanised and react to the unexplained, unexpected because it signals danger, It's activating all the danger circuits in some dogs' brains. Now you can habituate this and people who train dogs to be working dogs or police dogs and other things where there will be unexpected sounds like this, you can detune that response and the way you do it is by graded exposure. I was talking to somebody who does train dogs to be working dogs and the way he does it is start with the dog a long way away from the source of the sound and just get them used to the fact these sounds happen but then they can see what the cause is. They can see that there's a gun firing for example or Uh, a party popper going off and they, they they begin to learn that there isn't danger associated with the unexpected and so you can slowly increase the volume increase the proximity and they get used to it and then they're no longer alarmed but it's basically just the unexpected signaling to the fear circuits in that animal's brain and it causes exactly the same fear reaction we get when something scares the pants off us.
1: These days, uh, people are proposing CBD oil for nearly any ailment, including dogs that are scared of loud bangs. Um, From your vantage point, is that something to consider? No.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, there's a whole raft of snake oil as well as cannabis oil literature out there uh, that, that really is just a way of lubricating the passage of money from your wallet into somebody else's, Mm. the data are not there and the evidence are quite scant and it's just not strong. So really, when you do things that are intended to be done for a good outcome or an outcome, you have to have evidence to support them. Someone needs to have done proper clinical and scientific evaluation saying, we think this can do this. Now let's design proper experiments that test in an unbiased, rigorous way. Does A really translate into B? And there just isn't the evidence there around this. I think a lot of it is people with wishful thinking and people pinning their hopes on something without really a lot of evidence to support it that's not to say there isn't going to be some that's not to say that it is going to be useless for for some of these indications it may well have a lot of roles in a lot of useful things but lots of the things people are saying this stuff can do there's no evidence for it and it just has no mechanism for why it should do that at all so therefore it's just a way of wasting money.
1: Let's get on to a voice note. Um, uh, can we get to that particular voice note for Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist? Keep your questions coming via WhatsApp at
0: 0725671567. Morning, gentlemen. I have a question for Chris around animals. I've got an animal who's hypersensitive to both sound and touch. And I know that um, some humans are like that. And I was wondering what creates that hypersensitivity, and um, really, yeah, if there's anything you can do for it. Thank you so much.
2: Well, I think this is kind of going back to what we were just discussing with respect to uh, we are alarmed as humans by certain things, and certain people are much more sensitive to certain things than others. Some animals are too. We have written into our brains a series of circuits which are there to pick up the unexpected and the potentially harmful or dangerous and they activate a series of systems that are designed to protect us. They invoke your fight-or-flight reaction. And what that means is that when something scares you, you activate the sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system and one effect of that is to pump into the bloodstream a large amount of adrenaline and its chemical relative, noradrenaline. These go around in the blood and visit all of your internal organs, and they activate different receptors on those organs to have different effects. And in the heart, for instance, they activate um, harder beating and faster beating in the lungs, they open the airways in the eyes, they open the pupils, and uh, in your blood vessels, they increase blood pressure. There's a whole raft of, of effects. One of them also is to change your mood and make you feel scared. So you have in your brain circuits that are there designed to get you in the mood for action, to run away or turn and fight. Now in some people, and in response to certain stimuli, this can be an over-exuberant response. And this can lead to anxiety or panic. And and, and if we do it, there's absolutely no reason why animals which have a lesser ability to explain a sound as oh it's just a firework to them it's a scary sound that's come out of nowhere that might signal danger that might mean something's going to eat them and all the same reactions apply some animals are more skittish some are programmed by their evolution to be much more fearful much more cautious than others dogs have been bred for example to be around us and therefore They tend to tolerate the kinds of noises and unexpected things that we do and say and and therefore they are a bit more habituated by their breeding. But that's not to say that there can be some animals that just by chance, um, because every animal's unique and individual, won't have some kind of uh, sensitivity to this from time to time, as does my dog. So whether or not you can help an animal that has got a bit older, B, has these traits and they're really exaggerated. I think you, you probably can try in the same way that you can detune or tune out a phobia in a person by graded exposure. I think, nevertheless, there are some limits. And, and some dogs, if they are really, really fearful of certain things, you, you're, you're going to really struggle to overcome those in in a sensible way. But you, you could try. And there are people who are experts, dog psychologists and, and pet psychologists, horse psychologists, For for horses that shy at things that that perhaps put riders in danger, there are people who are very good at uh, reading the body language and psychology of these animals and then working out how to work with them to fix the problem.
1: Uh, Question for the naked scientist. Any cure for tinnitus? Ivan in Plumstead needing to know.
2: Hello, Ivan. Well, first of all, what is tinnitus? Tinnitus is this sense of a ringing in the ears, a sound But in the absence of any sound, it's autonomously generated sound issuing from the ear. And people describe whistling noises, ringing noises, banging noises, in some places quite repetitive mechanical noises in the absence of any kind of real sound input to the ear. And what unites most people who have tinnitus, apart from getting older, it gets much more common with age. What unites people is often prior exposure to very loud sounds on a regular basis, so people who get exposed to loud sounds in the workplace or recreationally from loud music for example it seems to be that it coincides with damage to the hearing organ the cochlea which is the bit of the the inner ear where you convert the mechanical energy and sound waves into electrical signals that are brain waves essentially now why should damage to that part of the ear or hearing system translate into you hearing sounds that aren't there well That part of the ear is connected via a series of nerve junctions to the hearing part of the brain where sounds are decoded and their meaning is interpreted. It's the auditory cortex. And one of the features of the nervous system is that it's always listening and tuning in to what signals are coming through. And in the same way that if you close your eyes and you you black out your vision, you then start to see colours transiently behind your eyelids because your eyes are amplifying whatever signals are there to try to see something when you have gaps or missing areas of your auditory spectrum because that part or the 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 region of the cochlea that decodes sounds of those frequencies has been damaged one theory is that your brain turns up the volume amplifying the sounds that are coming from the cochlea to try to make sense of what's missing and in the process they turn up the noise. It's a bit like if you're listening to a weak radio station or a weak radio signal on your radio in your car and you think I really want to catch this bit of speech but it's it's not a great signal. If you turn the volume up, you also turn up the noise, the hiss in the background and that's what we think is going on with tinnitus. It's very, very hard to get rid of. We don't know of any way of curing the problem but what you can do is very effectively manage the problem. And one one most important piece of advice is do not focus on it because in the same way that if you look at something to focus your attention on it you tend to make it clearer to your visual system and you can work out what what that thing you're looking at is by staring at it if you focus your mind's eye on sounds that are coming in in this way you will amplify them the brain will focus or tune in on the thing you're trying not To think of. There's a sort of element of reverse psychology. This is really annoying me. Um, I I don't want to think about it. So what do you do? You think about it more. So the best thing to do is to try not to think about it and not to worry about it. And then you can try techniques to mask the sounds. And one way to do that is to play gentle sounds or noises in the background. So you're not in total silence, you're hearing sounds. And those sounds will drench out or, or mask the tinnitus sounds, so that it's easier to ignore them. And as soon as you ignore them, they become less bothersome and you tend to tune them out so they are less intrusive. But they can be very, very distracting, disturbing. They can disturb people's sleep and they can be very distressing for some people. So if that is you, do get some professional help because people can A, sort the hearing problem out that's at the root of it probably anyway and that needs sorting out and b they can then give you some helpful helpful strategies for how not to have your life pulled apart by hearing these intrusive noises. Ivan thank
1: you for that question Adam Plumstead. Now we had a conversation about uh, energy energy drinks and the dangers that they pose. Um, This particular question may be related to that conversation that we had earlier this week. Does energy drinks really give us any energy is the question.
2: They certainly do, because if you look at the side of the tin, you'll see that they are full of sugar, a lot of them. There might be some sugar-free ones, and some are, I mean, I think I've seen them, but a lot of them do contain sugar, and that will give you energy, but it will also give you a big surge in insulin, the body's hormone for dealing with sugar, and the combination of that done regularly will make you fat. But the other reason they give you a surge of energy is that they're loaded up with stimulants and the the foremost stimulant among them is caffeine, the same stuff you get from a coffee. So drinking one of those energy drinks is the equivalent of drinking a whole heap of coffee all at once. The effect of caffeine is that it increases your body's sensitivity to adrenaline. That's one of its actions because what it does is it stops the breakdown of the signal in the cell that adrenaline produces making your cells feel much more active or galvanized so it increases your metabolic rate so you are sensitive to your own adrenaline it's like being wired literally the other thing that caffeine does is it inhibits the brain's sensitivity to the build-up of a chemical called adenosine because as you are going through your day building up in your brain is the chemical adenosine And the more of this there is, the more sleepy you feel, the higher your sleep pressure. So if you make the brain blind to the presence of adenosine, it doesn't feel sleepy or it feels less sleepy. So you will, if you were feeling tired and you take some caffeine, now feel much more awake. So in that way, you feel energised because you're less sleepy than you otherwise would the problem is that there is no such thing as a free lunch and you will crash later because your adrenaline sorry your adenosine level will continue to climb albeit uh, in a, into levels that your brain can't at that time detect but as soon as the caffeine goes away which it will with a half-life of i think six hours or so then suddenly you're going to see all this adenosine in your brain again and your brain's going to say crikey i feel really tired and then you're going to crash out literally go to sleep When you go to sleep, the brain washes out all that built-up adenosine and it resets the sleep clock, which is why when you wake up, you hopefully, having had a restful sleep, feel refreshed. But if you don't have a restful sleep at the right time, you're not going to flush out all the adenosine and unfortunately the history will keep repeating itself. So the best thing to do is to not use energy drinks except except on rare occasions when you really do need a surge in energy, it's better not to do this regularly. If you're doing this regularly in order just to feel normal and get through a day, you're probably not sleeping enough and you're probably doing yourself long-term harm.
1: Then we have a question. Dr. Chris Smith uh, via Zoom, of course, the Naked Scientist. Uh, good morning to the doctor. Why does the second cup of tea never taste as good as the first
2: cup? With our question. <laughs> I'm on my first cup of coffee today and and I find the second cup of coffee is never as good as the first cup of coffee so what unites those two well probably it's the caffeine isn't it I think we've just woken up you feel thirsty you still feel a bit tired and sleepy because you've just been wrenched out of bed by your alarm clock to come and talk to to Cape Talk and um, as a result of that you you n- need that caffeine because you're also a little bit in caffeine withdrawal because you haven't had any all night and so the levels have fallen and so that combination of something that gives you liquid and something that gives you a big surge that wake up to get you going because that's what the caffeine will do first thing because it gives you that adrenaline hit first thing i think that's why we we really enjoy that first slug of something that's a caffeinated be- beverage beverage and then after that, you've already got high caffeine levels and you probably just keep them that way most of the rest of the day, or at least I do. <laughs> so you don't notice the effect quite as much on subsequent uh, usages. Put it that way. Uh,
1: this is a question from Tyron. Um, Dr. Chris, we know exactly what electricity is, but without using the words bandwidth or radio waves, please explain what data is. Um, as used for cell phone and other electronic communication. And what do we actually pay for, uh, asks Tyron.
2: Uh, Tyron, what you're paying for is the infrastructure that your provider, the companies that are providing the mobile cell system, have put in. The actual electricity is relatively cheap compared with with running all the infrastructure and sending all the signals and all the data processing. How does it work? Well, the mobile phone network uses microwaves, which are a form of electromagnetic radiation in the same way that light is a form of electromagnetic radiation. FM radio is a form of electromagnetic radio uh, radiation. AM radio is the same. It is like light, so it is a changing, alternating electrical and magnetic wave. So you have a changing electric field, which changes a magnetic field, which in turn produces a changing electric field and so on. It propagates through space. In order to send information and therefore data that way, because although we discriminate between speech and data, that they are effectively doing the same thing. You're converting your voice into data or you are going on a web page on your smartphone and requesting data. It's pretty much the same, although they use slightly different sets of frequencies. But the way in which it works is you convert the data, into your, your voice or whatever, into a series of, of binary data and this is transmitted on the microwaves. And the way that they do that is you send pulses of microwaves where although the frequency is going to stay the same, um, in the case of FM radio, let's talk about that, you, you vary or, or modulate the frequency. So you make the frequency of the wave, how often it's happening, wobble a little tiny bit backwards and forwards and that's where the information is. If it's the AM radio that you're doing it with, you change the how high the waves are. The amplitude is, is modulated. If it's a digital wave, then you're actually encoding information digitally into the wave where you're sending uh, data that is pulses and those pulses are the information. And this is received by the cell phone network and it is then decoded because the information is coming from your phone. It knows it's talking to your device because there's written into the data that's arriving a unique fingerprint, a digital fingerprint that says this is Tyron's phone or this is Clarence's phone, Chris's phone, whatever. It So it knows whose phone is sending data and it's also sending data back to your phone with that same signature written in so your device knows that the data coming in is for it because your phone is seeing all of the signals that are coming through but it's only responding to the ones that are for your phone and vice versa. And when that data gets to a cell phone tower or cell phone receiver, then it, the, the data is converted into a format that is then transmitted over the internet essentially and it goes via a series of, of different connections to uh, whoever you want to talk to. In, in the case of a radio transmitter it's just a one-way conversation of course because it's data coming out of the radio transmitter going to your antenna on your vehicle or on your house and then into your smart TV or, or into your car radio.
1: We're nearly out of time. Let's uh, choose this one. When diagnosed with melanoma, run me through the stages from the basic to the extreme. And when is the diagnosis a life-changing event? What will happen to your body when it goes by unnoticed? That is the question.
2: Melanoma is a very common form of skin cancer. And it's particularly common in people with white skin. And this is because you don't have as much protection as black skin from the harmful rays in sunshine, which are ultraviolet rays, UV. And when UV rays penetrate the skin, they get to the deeper layers and they can damage or inflame a bunch of stem cells there called melanocytes. The melanocytes are the cells that make melanin, the dark pigment that gives you a Black skin hue, or it can also give you a suntan if you're paler skin, or if you've got black skin and you get a lot of sunshine, you get even blacker skin. And this is because you injure your skin a bit with these UV rays, and that excites the melanocytes. But when you get UV going in and and causing that inflammation, you can damage the DNA of the melanocytes. And if you damage DNA, you are at risk of getting cancer. And so, melanoma is one manifestation or consequence of long-term damage to skin by uv rays now when that first happens it doesn't mean it's bad news because your body is very good at detecting this happening and it destroys cancer all the time we've all got cancer trying to happen all the time and our body is destroying the damaged cells that are cancerous but occasionally and especially as we get older that system can become a bit more leaky and cells can sneak through that otherwise wouldn't and they then gain more changes to their DNA and more changes to their DNA until you've got something which is effectively cancerous and initially it'll be in just one place in the body, it won't have spread and if caught early and the danger signs are a a sort of blemish on the skin that's dark, irregularly dark, it's an irregular shape it might be itchy, it might be peeling or bleeding And it's also growing larger. If you see that, then you must take that seriously and it can be removed. And if it's removed in its entirety and it hasn't spread from that site or breached the barrier at the base of the skin, then there's a good chance you'll just be cured. But if you don't catch that in time, and very often it happens on people's backs, for example, and they don't see that this thing that resembles a mole that's gone a bit rogue, they don't see it. And until it started to spread, and the, and these cells can then grow invasively through the base layer of the skin, they get into your lymphatic system, they get into your blood vessels, and then they start to spread to other bits of the body, to your lymph nodes, other organs and By the time that happens it's very, very difficult to then treat the disease because you can't cut out all those organs and those new cancers start to grow invasively and aggressively in new parts of the body, especially the brain, the lungs, the liver, for example, and they do damage to those target tissues and eventually overwhelm the system. And, uh, and people, unfortunately don't live very long once that happens. So melanoma is one to watch out for because it's got a lot more common. It's gone up by 100% in the last 10 to 20 years in terms of the number of cases we're picking up. But thankfully, if we know to warn people, more people can get checked and they can therefore get the disease diagnosed and cured, hopefully if caught very early.
1: And that, Dr. Chris Smith, is all we have time for, unfortunately, this morning. Thank you very much uh, for helping us out with our questions, and I promise you we've got plenty that we couldn't quite uh, uh, share with you this morning. Uh, But we'll be chatting again next week. The Naked Scientist, uh, Dr. Chris Smith, joins us at 9.30 every Friday right here on Views & News. Nearly time for news at 10 o'clock with Graham Robbenheimer